Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Like the color, only more so. Uh, And follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Uh, Alan Ball is here. Hi. I'm actually here with Alan Ball. Yes. Uh, <laughs> We're here in my very luxurious office. It is very nice. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Let's get into it. Okay. Um, first of all, the publicity people wanted me to mention this is the 15th anniversary yes. of um, Six Feet Under. Yes. That's really exciting. The 15th anniversary of the premiere. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it feel like 15 years? Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Where were you? Where were you during like when that pilot came to be? Where were you even before pitching it? What were you doing? Well, um, I let's see. I had signed a, a, a TV development deal with um, the Greenblatt Gennari company, and I I pitched a uh, I pitched a pilot to ABC, and they bought it. And it was a show called Oh Grow Up. It got made. It it, it I think. 11 episodes aired before it got canceled. Um, That was a network show? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember that. What was that show? It was a show about three guys living in a brownstone in Brooklyn. Um, Two straight guys who were, for all intents and purposes, an old married couple. And a gay guy who had just divorced his wife. And there was, his wife was part of the show. And then one of the straight guys discovered he had a teenage daughter he never knew about. And there was a dog named Mom <coughs> that whenever it barked, there would be subtitles. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> was it a? Uh, it was a. Was it a multicam sitcom? It was. It was a multicam sitcom. That's really interesting. Because that's that's. I mean. Yeah. I originally came out from. of theater, but my first jobs in in Hollywood were multicam sitcoms. Yeah, and that's something I'm I'm really eager to talk about because I feel like a lot of us kind of go through that. Mm-hmm. Working, working these jobs, you, you take the jobs you can get. Absolutely. Um, and you learn so much from them. But I, we'll yeah. get to that. But I do want to hear about So you had done this show. I had done this show. Off the air. It got canceled. And there was, a, there was a pretty high level of cognitive dissonance going on with me in that I had poured myself into this show and become very emotionally invested in it. Even though... But, you know, after having spent years working on multi-camera sitcoms, it's the last thing I want to watch, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I was pretty depressed, and I went home for Christmas, because my mom was still alive then. And I had had a meeting with Carolyn Strauss from HBO after American Beauty sold, and she had read the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
or maybe no, I think it had come out uh, because Oh Grow Up and American Beauty premiered within a week of each other. Oh my god! And How bizarre. Yeah, it was really bizarre, and um, so she invited me to lunch, and I went out, and she said, uh, this was, Oh Grow Up was still in production at this time, now that I'm remembering it, and she said, you know, I want to do this show about a family-run funeral home, hmm. and something in my head just went, oh, click, of course, yeah, I totally see that show. Uh, what but, that, I mean, that's not, and I apologize, I'm going to interrupt you a whole lot, because I'm mm-hmm. going to dig in on things, but not everyone would say, I see that show. No, so, exactly. So what was that to you? Like, what appeared? Well, I had spent a lot of time at funerals growing up because people just kept dying, you know? <laughs> As they do. Yeah. And so I had a sort of sense of at least what that experience is like on the client end and what a surreal environment that, that, that funeral homes seemed to be, especially you know, in America where grief is not something that is, everybody sort of acts like it's it's mm-hmm. private, it should be private, nobody should ever see grief, it's too ugly to look at. There's almost a shame attached to it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, but, Ogrove was still in production, so I said, well, you know, good luck with that, that sounds like a great idea, I would really like to work on it, but I've got this show that... Um, involved right involved with right now mm-hmm. well then the show got cancelled and uh, I still had two years left on my TV development deal and I think because of American Beauty not because of Oh Grow Up <laughs> um, people were a lot of people were calling saying we have this idea for a sitcom that we think you're the perfect person to write hmm. uh, for it and but it was mostly a sitcom yeah all sitcoms interesting also comes and I mean watching American Beauty that's not the thing you jump to mm-hmm. knowing you have a sitcom background of course makes mm-hmm. sense but the, I think I just did it because that's my background and yeah. so you know um, honestly I don't know why anybody ever gave me a development deal to begin with <laughs> um, wait what was it was it just based on working on other people's shows yeah so well pretty much so well? and then I guess some people you know I guess I mean, I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Um, but I got shopped around. You know, my agent said, called me and said, I'm, I'm jumping all over the map here. Yeah, I hope yeah. that's okay. Um, my agent called and said, you know, this, this company wants to meet you for a development deal. Or this right. company wants to meet you. This was the late, late 90s. And, um, and so I went on all these meetings. And basically I went and every, everybody just like talked about how great they were and then I went to meet with Bob Greenblatt and David Janelari and they said we've read all your plays you know we we love your uh, your your screenplay for American Beauty we love that what do you want to do and they weren't sort of like telling me why they were so great right which I felt like at all these other companies that was exactly the pitch they gave to every writer who walked in the door it felt canned you know what I mean so when, when somebody said we read all your stuff and we like your voice particularly this and this and this and what do you want to do well um, that's you know that's how I ended up signing with them sure uh, okay now now get so, so yeah now, now jumping back to right you were free of the sitcom and yeah well I mean I had two years left and people kept calling and saying right. you know we have this 
stand-up that we think you're perfect to build a show around, which is the last thing I wanted to do, having worked on one of those shows. Sure. Um, we have, I think somebody, they would call with these ideas like, you know, uh, a guy dies and he comes back to his wife as a dog. And you're the perfect person, I guess, because I had a dog in my sitcom. <laughs> and I was just like, oh You really can God. write for dogs. I really do not want to go back into this world again. So when I went home for Christmas, I just sat down and banged out a pilot about a, uh, um, a family-run funeral home. Interesting. And, you know, writing for single cameras, I'm so much better th- at that than I am in that four-camera, you know, setup, setup, joke, punchline, callback sure. thing, um, which I have a tremendous respect for people who do that well. It's hard I to can't. Do. It's yeah. really, really hard, but that's just not, that's, that's not my voice. That's not what I really like to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, it's funny that you, you succeeded there for quite a long time, though. You must have been doing something right. Well, I had written a play that I guess people thought was funny. Right. And so they offered me a job, and I came out here on a Friday and started working on Monday and, you know, dropped into a sitcom writer's room, which is, you know, when you come out of the theater, that is a completely different world. Yeah. Um, and it was terrifying to me, actually. Um, but uh, Well, the writing of a play is very solitary. Yeah. Right? So you're immediately writing with up to 18, 20 other people. Yeah. So how did you adjust it? Well... And I promise we're going to loop it all back around. No, it took a while. It took a while for me to adjust. Sure. And what struck me was how, um, how disposable the script was, hmm. how dispensable the writing was. And what struck me was how much rewriting we had to do not to make it better but just to make it different yeah um it struck me how network executives would die laughing at a joke on monday and on at the run through on wednesday they'd go well that joke doesn't work anymore and you're kind of like well that's because you know it's coming you know because it's an element of surprise that has a lot to do with what makes things funny so you know what's coming and you really think that the joke doesn't work and just having to deal with that kind of mentality yeah um, was really sort of depressing to me and actually uh, was a big motivation for me writing American Beauty hmm. because uh, I just wanted to write something I cared about mm-hmm. because um, whether or not the shows I worked on were any good or not, it just felt so disposable. It was just churning out episodes where people in designer clothing could trade insults with each other, but it really basically trivialized Everything absolutely. You know, it has to be on a certain exactly, level, or it and, wants to be. On a and we level. did a very special breast cancer episode of one of the shows that I worked on, and it was just appalling. <sighs> um, and so I was filled with this rage, and I would go home and just pour it into American Beauty. Huh. Um, I mean, honestly, on the shows I worked on, we literally would start figuring out an episode by by the showrunner saying, okay, what's the moment of shit? Wow. And the moment of shit is where somebody learns a lesson or hugs, you know, or right. you, whatever. Gee, Mom, I guess I was really jealous of you and that's why I acted like a bitch or whatever. Right. Um, and then you work back from there. And so I just wanted to write something that didn't have a moment of shit, hmm. you know. And um, actually, the screenplay to American Beauty was, was a lot darker. Um... Than the actual film ended up being. What was 
when you would come home from work on this job that you weren't finding artistic uh, uh, satisfaction in, and you decided to put that into the screenplay, what what form did it take originally? What was what was the jumping off point? Well, I had originally been playing That's around right. with those ideas, those characters, mm-hmm. and that world um, when I was still in New York before I came out to LA and I had a theater company and we were doing we were doing you know late night sketch comedy slash satirical uh, um, shows in basements on a Thursday night um, and I had started working working those characters out in that and uh, I had just recently switched agents and my new agent who I'm still with Andrew Canava UTA who uh, I'm in eternal gratitude (laughs) to, um, said, well, we need to to reintroduce you to the movie community because I had a a screenplay version of my play that had been floating around and I had written an assignment that never got made. And so he said, you need to write a new script so I can reintroduce you to the feature community. Um, And so I pitched him three ideas, two of which were fairly traditional high concept romantic comedies Mm -hmm. and the third of which was American Beauty which was kind of hard to pitch in a high concept way you know Um, would you on these romantic comedy pitches I know this was some time ago but would you have been happy and satisfied to write these I guess I mean (laughs) I don't know it it, uh, I I'm not sure Mm -hmm. you know but it I mean it just feels like American Beauty scratched an itch that needed scratching. Totally, yeah, totally. And and that's what he said to him. He, he said, "That's the one you should write." Right. And I said, "Really? Why?" And he said, "Because that's clearly the one you have the most passion for." Yeah. And later he told me, "I never thought I would sell that movie. I just thought <laughs> I would have a great writing sample." Which is fair. <laughs> that's funny. Um, so you were sort of working on this while you were going through the sitcom. You know, mm-hmm. boot camp, mm-hmm. as it were, and and you must have learned a lot from those experiences. Oh yeah, no, I did, I did. I learned a lot that was very useful, and I learned a lot that I had to unlearn mm-hmm. later. Um, most well, that's of, interesting. I'd like. Know, to, I'm curious to hear about that. The network notes, mm-hmm. you know, make everybody nicer and articulate the subtext, sure. which are two notes that are just basically death to anything interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, all right. So coming back. So you're working on American Beauty. American Beauty finally sells. Right. It's made. Right. Uh, it's a different. People are getting a different look at you. It feels like. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that sort of took you out of the comedy stuff you had been thrown into in the first place. Well, I think that's why Carolyn Strauss wanted to have lunch with me <clears throat> because she had seen American Beauty, and I guess she thought, well, that's the tone that I see this funeral home mm-hmm. show with, or whatever. Uh, but when Ogre Up got canceled, I went home and I just banged out a pilot. Right. Because I did not want to go back into sitcom world because I think I would have been so miserable and I just knew that I just couldn't go back there. I was yeah. done. I had spent my time in that particular gulag and I was done. Well, that was how many years was that? That was uh, quite a while, right? I was. I spent four years on other people's sitcoms, and then I created my own. That's a a good amount of time to be doing that, especially if it's not a thing that speaks to you. Yeah, and I moved my way up the the hierarchy pretty quickly Mm -hmm. because the shows I was on were built around um, 
volatile personality stars, and they would go crazy and fire people left and right, yeah. and I would be the person left, or the the studio would entice me to stay by giving me a title bomb. So I I from the outside it looked like wow that guy's just really he's like he's sort of working his way up but it was basically because other people were getting fired why do you think well and we should say uh, for people who don't know it's Grace Under Fire right it's yes Grace Under Fire and Sybil um, which you know whatever people think of them they had good long runs they were very popular mm-hmm. and there was great stuff in those shows mm-hmm. um, why do you think you were never a target to get fired um I think because I basically just kept my mouth shut. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of other people would just shamelessly suck up to the stars. I didn't because I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, it would have been so obvious that it was fake. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, I came out of a. I have tremendous respect for actors. Clearly. And I don't believe either one of those women are actors. Sure. I think they're performers. I think they basically looked at their shows as sort of PR to the world for what cool, together, smart people they were. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is an impossible situation. I mean, yeah, and, and, the, and the job basically became making these people look as good as they could possibly look with the least amount of effort on their part. Yeah. Which is frustrating because it's like, fuck you. I mean, why don't you pull your weight? Yeah. And we've seen what happens now in a couple of series when you're working with actors who take it seriously and are, are there to be part of a bigger thing. Well, they're also... <clears throat> they're, one thing that drives me crazy about some actors is when they say, well, I would never do that. Hmm. And I want to go like, well, yeah, but this isn't, this isn't you. This is a role that you've been hired to play. Most actors who are worth their saw go like, oh, this is fun. I get to do something I would never do. But the sort of hardcore narcissists are like, well, I wouldn't do that, so it needs to be changed to what I would do. Mm. And those are the actors that I feel like, you know, basically, you know what, go fuck yourself. Go write your own script then. I'll I'll act. I'll get in front of the camera. (laughs) Show us what you would do. Yeah, exactly. Um, Can you tell me about working with actors where it is a great collaboration? It's fantastic. There's nothing better, yeah. you know. Um, there, when there's that kind of collaboration, there's that kind of trust, and because I mean, you know, I started out trying to be an actor, but I wasn't very good. Um, and so, when you really see somebody who can take words on a page that you've written and bring them to life, not only bring them to life and and and, and play what you saw in the scene and what you saw as a subtext, but add all this other texture and layers and stuff. There's nothing better than that. Um, <clears throat> and real actors, I think, really love to do that. So it's it's just it becomes like a mutual admiration yeah. society. Is there a way? And and I ask this purely for selfish reasons, as you know, a person who's making things. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to find those actors early on? Is there a way in the audition process to to start pushing on that and, and find these actors who will be great collaborators? I have to say, I I prefer actors who have training, who've been to, um, you know, who've gone through training, who come out of theater, who know how to play a scene. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many auditions I've sat through where people come in and they're charismatic and they're telegenic, 
but they basically just say the lines and they don't really know what they're playing they haven't made a decision and a lot of them don't have to because they have that thing whatever the camera loves them and they go and you can cut together a performance but it, it becomes a lot harder and more time consuming to work with an actor like that than with somebody who comes in and knows how to play a scene mm-hmm. yeah making decisions is, is an important yeah. thing and who's also open to you know trying something different yeah um, and then there's the other kind of actor who comes in and they've, they've made their choices and you cannot get them to veer away from them. Sure. You go like, okay, this time try it with this, blah, blah, blah. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they do it exactly <laughs> the same. So what do you do with that? I don't cast them. Or a director. Yeah, I don't cast them. But there has to be a time when you're casting so many parts. Well, you know what? If you're casting Hot Guy, (laughs) he doesn't need to come in and be like, you know, Pacino. But if you're... I tend to like to write even the day players, even the Mm -hmm. people who are playing hotel clerk or waitress, to give them something so it's not just, okay, here I am to deliver a line. Because it's more interesting. Absolutely. You know, and actors enjoy that more. Yeah. You know, give them something to play. That character has a life. Exactly. We may not see we it, may not see it yeah. but you want to feel like they have a life and they're not just actor number four walked in the door. Right. Um, and I think that is something that separates good writing from great writing, is that that tertiary character, however many lines he or she may have, mm-hmm. does have something going on. There's a character to that character. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to teach, and it's a hard thing to learn, I think. Yeah. A lot, I, I think a lot of the time that my background as an actor, even though I wasn't very good, has really benefited me as a writer because I sort of play all the parts in my head. Absolutely. When I write, <clears throat> and I have a very... I mean, I come from, I think, character more than anything. Plot is, is less um, organic, to me than just character. I always start knowing the character, feeling them, who they are, what they are, and then that sort of happens. And when an actor comes into audition and they play the scene and they, they bring it to life and then they are able to take adjustment, then that's the actor I'm going to hire. Absolutely. You know? It feels like this character out way of writing uh, was very much present in Six Feet Under. Was it there from the beginning when you sat down and just banged out this pilot, mm-hmm. was it who are the characters, and, mm-hmm. and how much does it resemble the, the characters that we know? What do you mean, the characters that we know? That became, ultimately, the shot pilot. Well, yeah. I mean, ultimately, a script is a, is a blueprint. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you build a house, of course, you're going to make adjustments along the way. You're going to see, oh, like, the light comes in from this angle, so let's put a big window there. And once you cast something, of course, you start writing to the actor's strengths. Um, but... Yeah, I have a I have a very clear idea of who the characters are, and if people come in, and I mean, you know, sometimes somebody will surprise me, and they'll be so different from what I imagined, but it's so legitimately interesting and good that I'll go that way. Sure. But other, I mean, for the most part, I I have a very I, I think I have a pretty good idea of who the character is, what's their, you know, what's what's their subtext, what's going on in their world that they're ashamed of, what, you know, what are they fighting for, what's important to them, how do they feel about the situation that they're in, just because that's just the way my brain works. Sure. So when you, when you sat down to write the Six Feet Under pilot, how fully formed 
were those characters and their trajectories too. I mean, how much of the series did you know? I didn't know anything about where the series would go. That's really interesting. I basically, to me, a pilot is all about opening as many doors as possible mm -hmm. because you don't know. I mean, you can plan, okay, this is going to be this great love affair that's going to span six seasons, and you cast these people you were like, and then they end up with zero chemistry. What are you going to do? Right. You know? Um, so I, I think, though, that getting back to your original question, I think the characters um, of Six Feet Under were pretty much there in the pilot. Hmm. Pretty much there. And, as you say, you left the doors open to mm -hmm. explore them. And I think the only thing I knew about that first season was that David was going to have to come to terms with his sexuality and come out. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really know what else was going to happen. Sure. What, what was interesting to you about this world and these characters, other than it was very different from where you had come from? Well, I'll tell you, it was because when I was growing up, you know, like I said, a lot of people died, and it was very traumatic, and and people I, you know, cared about deeply, and, and uh, you know, my sister died in a car accident, and I was in the car with her. So, basically, death just kind of, like, stuck its big old ugly face in mine and said, hello! So, <clears throat> the fact that... I think the thing that interested me about this show was, okay, these are people who live in the constant presence of death, and who are the people that we hire mm -hmm. to make death palatable hmm. for us? Um, so that, I became really interested in who those people were and how they did that. Um, yeah, it's an interesting world. You know, it's a very interesting yeah. world. Not one I would particularly want to live in. No. But mostly the but stuff I write is not a world that I want to live in. It's a world that I would want to watch. But you do, I mean, I guess that, that, that's the difference. I mean, mm -hmm. are you, you able to keep that distance, that uh, intellectual or emotional distance? Not always, but I do try to because I think it's kind of healthy to yeah. do that. I don't want to become sure. completely, you know, because there was a lot of security <clears throat> under that was fairly depressing and so I didn't want to be depressed you know absolutely um, and I wasn't actually during, during it was a, I don't know I felt like we would not that it's I, I just for me it's very important to I'm happiest when I work on something that I give a shit about and I feel like it's about something mm -hmm. other than just is it going to be profitable which seems to be the 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 motivation behind the vast majority of stuff that gets done. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's an interesting thing to say, considering your last couple series were HBO, mm -hmm. which feels like they take their time and mm -hmm. they don't worry so much about, is it profitable first? Mm -hmm. You know, they wouldn't take the gambles that they take. Exactly. Was that your experience with them? Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, considering... You mentioned learning about network notes. What was your relationship like with them? Oh, the first note I got from HBO after I gave them the pilot was, it feels a little safe. Can you make it more fucked up? Wow. Yeah, and <laughs> after years of like trying to make things safer and more palatable and make characters more likable and blah, 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 I was just like, are you kidding? You know, I had to rein myself in from just making things fucked up for the sake of being <laughs> fucked up, you know? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, my experience at HBO has has been 
very, very positive because I feel like, you know, the thing that made HBO and made HBO HBO to begin with and is now, you know, in, you know, having the same influence on all these, these other new platforms and is why we're in a golden age of television and television is smarter and more interesting than movies is because they want a voice. They want a voice that's not the voice... I feel like the, the prevailing idea outside of premium cable is let's make something that really resembles something that's already been successful. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's just a, that's just a really, to me, that's a really uninteresting approach. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, again, considering what you've been able to do in TV, especially at a time when not everyone was looking for a mm-hmm. voice. Mm-hmm. But when you look back at television, the successful shows are generally those shows with authorial voice. And those are shows that wouldn't make it today. Absolutely. You know, Seinfeld would not make it today. Yeah, absolutely. But, cheers. But then, I mean, we it also took Cheers a season or two to really find its audience. Yeah. You know, but these are seminal TV shows and they wouldn't be on today. It is true. I mean, do you think there's, we are in this golden age. Mm-hmm. There is, there are so many outlets and so many opportunities. Mm-hmm. In your experience these past, you know, five years, mm-hmm. are networks willing to take, maybe not the, the uh, uh, big networks, but but other outlets willing to take a chance on on a voice. Well, certainly some are. I mean, you know, some of my favorite shows of the last couple of years have come from places I never thought they would come mm-hmm. from. You know, um, Unreal I think is a fantastic Sorry. TV show. It's on Lifetime. Yeah. And the first time I saw that, I was like, really, Lifetime? <laughs> um, Mr. Robot, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, USA Network, mm-hmm. you know, and USA Network does good shows, but they're not shows that I specifically think of. Wow, that is a really interesting, unique voice. This is a very different show for them. Yeah, exactly. So I do believe that a lot of places are are really willing to take chances. Do you think the the big networks will ever do this? Is there reward in it for them? I mean, we can look back and say there's a voice equals. An audience. I don't know. I mean, certainly they get rewards for you know a lot of the stuff that they do. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be particularly unique uh, or, or come from a particularly mm-hmm. unique worldview. That's true. But I think a lot of people don't want that. There's a lot of a lot of the audience out there that wants to watch The Bachelor for the nineteenth hundred time. Sure. You know. Um, it's yeah. safe. It's comfortable and good for them. I just don't want to work in that arena. I don't. I can't think of any network show that has really made me want to watch it. Yeah, I can understand that. You know. Yeah. yeah. In Check fact, out I, Last Man on Earth. Oh yeah. It's great. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is the first one that popped into my head. Uh, I went on. I went on Facebook. I asked some people for their uh, six feet under questions. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine wants to know about the carjacking episode. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to know how and why you decided to build such a sharp turn into David's story, and just about that episode in general, which was very different from mm-hmm. uh, the rest of that season, even the show in general. Do you remember remember that? Well, and do you want to just 
Yeah. Tell us what it was, just to, for people who haven't seen it. No, the the episode started out like any other episode. Everybody had their a you know everybody had their story, and then David picks up this hitchhiker who ends up to be a psychotic, you know, a psycho, yeah. and um, he finds himself in mortal danger and having to beg for his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I came into that season feeling like we really needed to shake David up. What season was this? I believe it was three, okay. season three. Or it, yeah, I, I think it was season three. And <clears throat> because he, even though he had come to terms with his sexuality and he'd come out, there was still so much internalized judgment and fear that he just sort of kept himself from being happy. And, and there was this remove from life. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I really think we need to put him in a really a situation that's going to change his life. And um, hmm. actually, you know, uh, years and years and years ago, my brother was dating this woman who was getting into her car in a parking lot and a guy with a gun carjacked her mm-hmm. and drove her out to a, you know, a place, um, not a gun, a knife, mm-hmm. uh, drove her out to some remote place and got out of the car and was, I don't know, you know, probably preparing to rape and kill her. And she had the foresight to slam all the doors and, and lock them and lean on the horn. Jeez. So it happens. Sure. I mean, it happens to people. It happens to somebody I knew. Mm-hmm. So we just sort of used that as the bouncing off place and took it from there. And I thought it was interesting structurally to once that happens, everybody else's story is just, who cares? Yeah. You know, I think if I were to do another TV series, one thing I would do is I would not feel the need to give every main cast member a story in every episode because that's very, very difficult. One of the things I love about Game of Thrones, even though sometimes I think maybe they have too many characters... Um, is that, you know, it's not like every character is in every episode. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that. And I think what I would do, were I to do another TV show, would be sort of lean more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, are you interested generally in an ensemble show? Yeah. What is it about that? You know, the first two shows I did were star vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um there's something about an ensemble show that lets that is more liberating, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think for an audience, if it's not just one star but it's like five, there's probably somebody you're going to identify with, mm-hmm. you know. That's true. Um, one of the things I really liked about Six Feet Under is, you know, we had a character in her late fifties who wasn't like nipped and tucked and trying not to, trying to hide her age and she was a sexual creature mm-hmm. you know awkwardly weirdly but she wasn't just like you know, you know she wasn't just a woman for whom life ends at 40 sure um, or she was able to have a sexual life without pretending you know taking drastic measures to look 20 years younger you know and I think a lot of people a lot of people in that demographic watched Six Feet Under that wouldn't have necessarily watched it if it had only been about the kids or if it had only been about Nate. Yeah. You know? How much do you, as the creator of these characters, have to empathize with them? A lot. And how do you get yourself into that? 
it's really easy for me for some reason. It? It's very difficult for me to write a character that I hate. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting for me as a writer is to get into the mind of somebody who does despicable things and try to understand why. It doesn't mean that you necessarily forgive them, but I don't think anybody sets out to be despicable just because they want to. I think 99% of the time it comes out of vulnerability, it comes out of pain, it comes out of being hurt, and that's, I mean, that's, then that becomes what's interesting to me about that character, is why they took that stuff in this direction instead of being a more open, more willing to sort of like acknowledge their weaknesses and their shortcomings and, and their needs. FreshBooks is dead simple cloud accounting software that's saving millions of freelancers from the scourge of dealing with their day-to-day -day admin and paperwork. Yeah, I said scourge. It's the perfect word to describe agonizing tasks like formatting and tracking invoices, managing cash flow, dealing with expense reports, chasing late payments, other things. Nobody likes to do this stuff, except maybe the five million freelancers and small business owners already using FreshBooks. Invoicing. It literally takes about 30 seconds to create and send a really professional looking invoice. Your clients can pay you online, which you can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. Late payment reminders. If a client forgets to pay you on time, FreshBooks will handle the awkwardness with customizable late payment reminders. Need more? Expense. FreshBooks has also cracked the code on expense tracking. You can set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, so next time you use your debit card for that business lunch, the transactions magically appear in your FreshBooks account. It's not actual magic. For a 30-day free trial, just go to freshbooks.com writers. Enter Nerdist Writers panel in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, 30-day free trial. Go to freshbooks.com writers. Enter Nerdist Writers panel in the How Did You Hear About Us section and get yourself some fresh books. So when you're, when you're turning over these characters, when you're mm -hmm. looking for those things that make them tick, and this is maybe a silly question, but it's a real deep process question, what does that look like? Do you walk around? Do you type all the stuff out? Like, is it a verbal exploration? I, I, a lot of times I will say the dialogue out loud as I'm writing it. Hmm. Um, I just try to get in there. You know, it's, it's, it's me, it's that part of me that wants to be an actor, and I think if I had been a successful actor, I would have been one of those guys who, one of the actors that I like, which is I wouldn't necessarily feel like it has to be me. Right. You know, it's, yeah. you, you know, just experiencing another person, another being's behavior and understanding where that comes from. Um, I don't know why. It's probably a subtle form of madness, but it's always been, I've always had it at my disposal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. What, yeah. what does a day look like when you're working on a script, whether for TV or features or anything? Uh, What's your routine? Well, I hang out in my office. I tend to be more of a, I'm not a morning person. I tend to write later into the night, and if I'm on a roll, I will write, you know, until three in the morning. Really? Um, I have to fight the procrastination. You know, I have to fight the impulse to, like, 
oh, there should be a song on the stereo in this in this scene. <laughs> Let's go to iTunes and see what song it would be. And then, like, you know, two hours later, you're still listening to songs and going, fuck me, I should, you know, get back to the work. Um, <clears throat> but it's pretty solitary. I, I kind of lose myself. I shut myself in. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you work off of, I mean, you're working with various entities, so I imagine you have to work off of outlines and submit outlines. When I'm writing on my own, I don't work with outlines. Mm-hmm. I don't. It just doesn't. If I were to complete an outline, I wouldn't write the thing because I feel like I've, I'm done. I, I like it being a journey of discovery, which is more often than not unsuccessful. You know, I have, I have folders filled with the beginnings of things. Yeah. And occasionally I'll go back and pull one out and go like, wow, this isn't bad, and I'll finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that but, excavation is a difficult process, and, and like I say, because you don't know where it's going, it doesn't always yield something. But that's the fun part, is the, ex, is the excavation. Yeah. If I'm doing a TV show, yes. Right. Once, once the show is in production, yes. It's a, it, you have to have outlines. Well, it becomes a different yeah, animal, too. Exactly. You're um, discovering in the room, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, screenplays, sometimes I'll get to a point and I'll be like, oh, i got to figure out how this is going to end. <laughs> And I'll start writing like one-line scenes until it ends, but mm. but I usually have like at least sixty pages before I get to that point. Interesting. You know. <clears throat> uh, let's let's look at some more of these questions. Uh, Sarah Watson, great television writer, wants to know about the um, fake commercials in the Six Feet Under pilot. Well, part Were of my part of the original pilot. Yeah. And was the idea to use them going forward too? Well, I don't think I was thinking at that point whether they would continue or not. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of what I, the research that I did to find out more about the industry mm-hmm. when I was writing the pilot was I looked at a lot of trade pub- publications mm-hmm. for um, the funeral, the death care industry, as they call themselves. And, you know, full-page ads, glossy ads, like a hearse with, like, a hot, you know, a beautiful woman in an evening gown leaning against it, and and I thought, well, that's interesting. This is a business. There's a market for these specific products. What if we took it one step further? It is television, by right. the way, and so turn it into TV commercials, um, because I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Once we got the go-ahead to go to series, I I realized, well, we're going to run out of products pretty soon. <laughs> sure. So let's just drop that. You've also got half a dozen characters to yeah, yeah, yeah. in every episode. Exactly. To start. Exactly. Yeah, never mind how it grows from there. And and it became, I think, the 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 opening death of the week I think sort of replaced those commercials that makes sense you know yeah. what, what did those do for you that was always such an interesting I don't want to say gimmick but uh, way into a story well it's a funeral home somebody's got to die sure <clears throat> somebody's got to go through some somebody's got to go through that funeral home and bring the survivors and the whatever mm-hmm. so that our 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 main characters have to interact with them and do what they do when they are the people who, you know, handle death for us. Um, and I just felt like, you know, Nathaniel's death in the beginning of the pilot 
was so strong. And, you know, I think one of the underpinning ideas of the series is death exists, death happens. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed like the the right way to go. Yeah, it's a way to explore that. Yeah. For sure. Did you, in that initial research, did you uh, look at the American way of death? Yes, I looked at the American way of death. That's actually my meeting with Carol, Carolyn Strauss. She brought up that book and I read it. And, um, you know, it's a very interesting book. I don't know the book. A friend of mine had mentioned it. It's in the 60s, this woman named Jessica Milford wrote this book about the American way of death. It was sort of an expose of the funeral industry. Hmm. And, um, I mean, it's very interesting. It's a lot of stuff, you know, that people don't know and probably don't want to know about what goes on behind the scenes of a funeral, what is done to the body, what is the purpose of, you know, how people are sort of pressured into spending more money because that makes it seem like they really cared about the person rather than buying a cheap casket. But it was kind of a, a, it was a little bit of a screed too. It was like, it was very, um, you know, it's all money. It's all up to make money. And it's like, well, yeah, we live in a capitalist society. What what the fuck? You know, do you think they should be doing it for free? Or what? We should just, like, drop bodies in dumpsters? So it seemed, <clears throat> seemed a little self-righteous. And, and I didn't have... After reading it, I didn't really feel like, oh, okay, now, now I know... Now I understand this business in a way that's going to inform the show. Sure. Well, it's, it's unnuanced. And, and what well, and it's also just very. It's not about. <clears throat> yeah, it's yeah. It just wasn't interesting emotionally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So then I found these books by this um, this amazing writer named Thomas Lynch. One is called The Undertaker, The Undertaking, mm-hmm. and he is a third generation funeral director and poet and he his books are really really gorgeous and beautiful and there was a there was an essay about washing the body of his father after he died and what a what that experience was like and he wrote from a very unsentimental but emotional place about how we confront death and those books informed the tone of the show way more than the Jessica Mil- Milford book. Sure, because it sounds it, like it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's poetry. In there's, there's poetry. Emotion in that. Yeah, I mean, you you <clears throat> you can either get angry about death, or you can like invite it in and sit down with it and try to make peace with it. Mm-hmm. That that forces you to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The other stuff comes from like. You know, wanting to pretend it doesn't exist, I think, and I, that didn't seem like what the show should be about. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, you created a vehicle for yourself where you can explore all of these aspects. Mm-hmm. Every every take on death or on living. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you when you put your room together and you worked? You had sort of a traditional room on this, right? Mm-hmm. On six feet under. Mm-hmm. When you put your room together, how do you start to paint that target for? You know, what do we want to explore and? in a practical way where are these characters going what kind of stories are we telling well 
at first, because I had never done an hour-long single-camera show before, I I hired people based off of spec scripts mm -hmm. and learned pretty quickly that, you know, just being able to write a really good episode of The Sopranos doesn't mean you're the right voice for this show. Sure. Um, so I had to weed, weed some people out the first couple of seasons. That's a tough thing. Did that come down to ideas in the room or execution of scripts? Both. Both. Yeah. Both. Um, you know, for example, there we were, you know, there's an episode in the first season where a baby dies. And there was a writer who's saying, like, we cannot do that. We cannot do that. And I was like, we have to do that. Mm -hmm. Because babies do die. And funeral homes have to deal with it. You know, I don't know what we get by pretending that doesn't happen. And so... What well, is that instinct to be safe again? Yeah. Right? Which both you, HBO, and then you had to run away from. Yeah. Yeah, because we're not safe. We're all going to die. <laughs> you know? And so why pretend that there's this... So, anyway, <clears throat> I learned very quickly that I no longer read spec scripts for existing shows mm -hmm. because I don't need to know if a person can match the voice of the good wife you know I need to know what that person's instinctive voice on their own is mm. so I read plays, I read short stories I read screenplays, I read um, spec pilots um, I, essays you know sure, that's but right. I don't read spec scripts just because it doesn't really give me a lot to go on mm -hmm. and then if I read a script I like I meet with the actor not the actor <laughs> the writer try to get a sense of what they're like how their energy will be in the room mm -hmm. uh, and what they think the show is about and what they're interested in exploring mm -hmm. you know well, that's interesting you know do you, what are your expectations from a room what do you want them to bring to help you as the showrunner I want them to bring perspectives that I don't have. Um, I want them to bring um, a certain level of passion about the material, about the project. Um, I want them to bring the opposite of insanity. <laughs> I want to feel like they're going to be able to conduct, conduct themselves like adults and not sure. behave like, you know crazy children, which is difficult because a writer's room is uh, the place where everybody plays out their familial dynamics. Um, Especially on a family show. Oh yeah, Dear totally. Lord. Totally. Um, Were you doing that too? Well, yeah, of course. I don't think I can escape from it. But, I, but, but being the showrunner, you find yourself in the role of dad, which I'm not a dad. <laughs> so I sort of am playing out, I guess, what I think is my idealized version of dad, but oh my God. I know it's crazy. <laughs> um, uh, but also, there's a certain amount of like I really love to delegate authority. I really nothing makes me happier than when a script comes in and I don't have to do a lot of work on it. Sure, that's like great. Uh, you know, I don't have to work this weekend. I love it. Um, both the shows I've run, I, I, I've let the writer serve as, you know, the on-set producer uh, That's great. of the episode and, you know, be involved from the very beginning through casting and <coughs> shooting and editing and all, all post. Um, 
partially because I think it makes people more invested, and if they're more invested, they're going to do better work. Mm -hmm. And partially because I'm lazy. I don't want to be one of those people who has to develop a cocaine habit just so that I can do every single thing and put my stamp on every single thing because that's not that important. Well, to it's me. interesting too. I mean, looking at both True Blood and Six Feet Under, your stamp is so much on those shows. So, how is that accomplished through? Well, I hire people who have a similar perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all coming from the same place, I think, in terms of um, sensibility. We have similar sensibilities. Um, and of course, you know, I'm the guy with veto power, but, sure. but we, uh, and I like it this way, if, um, we break stories as a room, we write outlines as a room, one writer goes off and writes a draft, we come back, we give notes as a room. That's great. Where, yeah. where did you learn that? Or did, was it just, did it just make sense? It made sense. Not a lot of rooms do that. You hear it from like the John Wells camp, but not much other places. Yeah. I mean, everybody has their own system. Uh, mine. I think is just I enjoy the collaborative mm -hmm. nature I enjoy the collaboration and that feels like a theater tradition yeah like, exactly it's everybody sort of gets to weigh in it becomes this, exactly. this other thing yeah yeah that's really cool let's talk for a second about the finale mm -hmm. which I mean people still talk about as one of the great last episodes mm -hmm. when did that start to come clear to you when did you start to realize how this show would end and, and how the execution would go well, the beginning of season five, I called HBO and I said, this is going to be my last season because mm -hmm. I need to, I'm getting burnt out. Yeah, it's a long time. Um, and they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll it's going to be the last season of the show um, because we don't want to do it without you. Which is really good of them. Well, <laughs> if it had had the, you know, if it was pulling the numbers that True Blood <laughs> was pulling when I left it, they mm -hmm. would have said, okay, well, who do you want to... You know, who do you want to hand the reins to? That's a different animal, too, though. And, and we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so, with, for, so, for the first time, we went into the writer's room that year knowing that, the episode, that it was going to be the last season. So, we had to figure out what was going to happen at the end and work our way backwards, which we never did before. Hmm. Um, and we were sitting around, and there was a lot of crazy stuff being pitched, you know, including Ruth getting Alzheimer's and having a really depressing, uh, degenerative, you know, slide into dementia. And I was like, <laughs> I don't want to watch that. <laughs> um, there was the idea of there actually being um, a nuclear attack and Los Angeles being a, a post-apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> people would have talked about it yeah sure. <laughs> but then uh, then I wish I could remember who it was in the room because I never because it wasn't my idea hmm. but somebody said we should just kill everybody and we all laughed like yeah uh -huh. and uh, and then they said no we should actually be with every person at the moment of their death and I was like of course what other way can you end this show and so we started working we worked backwards from that interesting um and I also knew that Nate was going to have to die, but I didn't want him to die in the last episode mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted the family to have to deal with losing one of their own. That's why the show you, started. Yeah. You know. Why, why did he have to die? Why did you feel that that was important to the show? Because, I mean, in a lot of ways, 
Nate was our way into this world. You know, in the first few seasons, we made jokes about him being the Marilyn Munster. He was the normal one. <laughs> sure. Um, and he also never got to that place where he was like, I'm content with my life. Mm-hmm. He was always looking for something more. He was always, you know, finding fault with, with what he had, which is, of course, very human. Mm-hmm. Everyone does it. But I also wanted it to be somebody younger so that there would be a certain tragic aspect to it. Mm-hmm. You know, he had just turned 40 uh, on the show. And if you're going to kill any... And if, if, if one person is going to die for the family to sort of grieve over... It seems like it had to be him. That makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I love, yeah, I love the idea that as in any season of the show, they have to deal with this grief. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very interesting. Um, so then how did, uh, when did True Blood start to sort of take shape and how did you get involved? You know, I had, True Blood, I went to, um, I went to the dentist and I was early, so I went to the Barnes and Nobles that was next door. <laughs> and... I was just looking at books, and I found this little book called Dead Until Dark, and the, and the tagline was, maybe having a vampire for a boyfriend wasn't such a good idea. And it made me laugh, so I bought it, and I read it, and uh, at the time, there were three other books in that series, and I read them all, and I, I started thinking, this would be a... I would watch this if this was a TV show. Yeah, what was it about it? That it was just so... You know, after Six Feet Under, it was so entertaining. Mm-hmm. It was so much fun. Sure. Um... And that sort of appealed to me, I think, because I, I was sort of done with peering into the abyss for a while. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just thought it was some, I thought it was something that would be a good TV show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was doing a... I, I, I wrote and directed a movie between Six Feet and True Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wasn't planning to go back into TV, but it just sort of happened. You know, and then it became this phenomenon that nobody ever saw coming. <laughs> Which I don't know why not. Look, you guys, vampires, sex, I didn't relationships. Even, you know, at the time, I didn't even know about Twilight. I didn't know Twilight existed. Did they hit around the same time? I can't remember. They did. Okay. You know, and then the more I found out about Twilight, I was like, really? <laughs> Vampire book about abstinence? What the <laughs> fuck? That, vampires are sex. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's really funny. But I liked how in the books she sort of used vampires as a stand-in for minorities or, mm-hmm. or misunderstood communities and, and used the anti-vampire fervor as a way to sort of shine a light on you know everything that's going on in, in our own culture sure. regarding people who are, quote, different, unquote. Um... I forgot about the the film in between. What uh, what do you get from features that you don't get from TV, or what different what different uh, itch does it scratch for you? In terms of writing, mm-hmm. I feel like a series is more comparable to a novel, like a long book with many chapters, mm-hmm. whereas a movie is like a novella. You know, it is, there's, yeah, there's less texture, there's less 
you're, you, things can't be quite as complex and constantly evolving as they can in a television series. But you go on a journey with a, a character, usually. I think you kind of... I mean, I, I think ensemble movies work, absolutely, but, but I tend to... I look at the movies that I've written and they tend to have a lead mm-hmm. character. Sure. Having that focus is... Yeah, really is helpful. really helpful. In the shorter form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what, do you, what do you get out of a feature? I mean, those, to me, being a TV guy, sound like compromises. <laughs> like, I'm, I want to explore the novel. I want to, want to dig deep on a character. I don't know. I like to do things different. I like to... Like I love. I mean, I came out of theater, and I I, I wrote a play at, during that time as well. And you know, there, it's a different. It's a, it's a different medium. Um, in a play, you can you can really lose yourself in the language. You know, um, in a movie, you can really lose yourself. Well, you can do this in TV too, visually. You know, in in in. In, in visuals and moments of silence and and that kind of thing. I'm not really sure what it is that I get out of movies, but I know that I keep writing them. So sure. there's some pull, and there there must be something to the way a certain story wants to be told. Yeah, exactly. Um, like American Beauty could never be a series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think Six Feet Under could be a movie. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Uh, was there stuff? Um, you know, in well, let, let's talk a little more about True Blood. And, and did you approach things differently on that show than you'd had to Six Feet Under? In terms of the way I ran the show, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I feel like it was a completely different tone and a completely different sure. rhythm and look and feel to it. Um, but that seemed to be organically decided by the material mm-hmm. you know yeah oh of course was there can you point to yourself in that show I mean it feels like the the big stuff we know Six Feet Under and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the movies are, feel so personal mm-hmm. uh, does True Blood have that or was it really just I want to make some fun crazy entertainment I mean there's never a character that I look at and go like oh that's me sure um, whereas in six feet, I could say I'm an amalgamation of all three of those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they're based on me, but that yeah. I really sort of have. I, I feel like I understand them and what they want to do. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm from the South, so I think the the in the Louisiana environment was fun mm-hmm. for me. Um, I mean, maybe it was just like a complete 180, and it was like a world where death really didn't. <laughs> It didn't exist. Although that's people funny. died in the right. show, but it almost it, doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's funny. Um, but I don't know. I've never really thought about that, and so I'm not <laughs> quite sure what it is or how to articulate it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, and then, how long were you with the show? Five years. It was five years. I, I left after season five. That's a long time. <laughs> were there particular? I mean, and, and we've covered this a little bit, but were there particular challenges and? whatever the opposite of challenges are for that show specifically? Well, I think the big challenge, and it became a trap for us, was to try to outdo ourselves, mm-hmm. to try to top what had happened the week before. And it, 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 sure. it sort of took the show 
it kind of ran off the rails a little bit. Yeah. But I also don't believe shows need to last for seven seasons. Sure. Uh, if I were to do a show again, I think I would go into it and I would say, like, you got to give me the option to end it after season three. Mm-hmm. Because you run out, you know? You run out of things to do to happen to these characters. Well, and especially if you're exploring a theme... Yeah, you can you can hit it so many ways, but eventually you're gonna run. Eventually out. you're gonna run out, yeah. and uh, and I think these shows that run for ten, twelve years, I'm just like Jesus. How the <laughs> hell do you guys do that? Sure. When I was a kid, I had a, my first job in high school was at Six Flags Over Georgia Amusement Park, uh-huh. and my job was to go where somebody didn't show up that day. So I had a different job every day. You know, here I was the petting zoo. Here I was loading people onto the roller coaster. Here I was, you know, and I like that. I I like to give myself challenges and and to do something new and to be kind of forced to learn, you know. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep doing that? So you're coming out of, you know, 20, 25 years of really a lot of success, a lot more than many TV writers or film writers have, how do you keep finding those new things? Well, I try to trust my instincts. Um, if somebody pitches me something and I'm like, that's a great idea, but then I really think about it and am I the right person to do that? Do I have the level of personal connection to that idea that I need to have to sort of go into that? Um, and so I've said I've had to say no to a couple of things that I think were really terrific ideas and would make terrific shows but I don't want to make a show that I don't have that uh, organic connection to because I'm not going to do I'm not it's I'm not going to do a very good job yeah you know That's, having that self-awareness is I think rare and yeah and so what I do is I just keep writing on spec mm-hmm. you know I'm sitting on four screenplays, you know, that I'm trying to get off the ground. It's a, compl- it's a completely different world yeah. than it was 15 years ago. American Beauty would not get made today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I just wrote a pilot, a spec pilot, that my assistants are proofing right now. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. I didn't pitch it to anybody. I didn't develop it. It was just something you wanted to write. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I did write a pilot and shot and shot it in Budapest um, a year ago. Mm-hmm. This is a big period piece, you know, 18th century um, thing, and uh, and you know, I poured everything into it. It didn't go, um, but you know, I'm I'm almost 60, so I don't need to be working around the clock. Sure, I'm okay just taking it easy and taking my dogs for a hike or going to the gym or reading a book (laughs) or taking a nap (laughs) absolutely look you've earned it Uh, it's very hot yeah Um, you you mentioned looking at other people's stuff does producing and supervising does that does that suit you does that I thought it did but it really doesn't really yeah I mean the things I produced I basically I think, well, that's good, and then I take it, you know, I give it to HBO and they go, or Cinemax, and they, they go like, yeah, that's good, we'll do it. Once they start doing it, I'm like, okay, have fun with that. I don't really... Sure, you, you don't have to be part of the day-to-day, but you must do something 
you know, in the early... No, I mean, I read scripts and I watch cuts and I give notes, but I don't, you know, I'm... I'm never going to look at something and come in and go like, oh, okay, we really have to rethink this. Because mm-hmm. first of all, it's not my show, somebody else's show, and they should do what they want to do. And, you know, in the case of Banshee, they were doing such a great job. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do anything, you know? Sure. And it was just fun for me to watch. That's great. That's yeah. a remarkably healthy attitude. I, again, I go back to I wonder how much of it is just laziness. <laughs> <laughs> it reads as healthy. Well, <laughs> I'll take important. that then. I will take that. Uh, we'll wrap up by asking, what are you watching on television these days? Have you seen any good movies lately? Have you read any good books? What are you What are you putting in your brain these days that you're enjoying? Well, I have to admit, like most of the world, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. And I'm still reeling from this last episode. Uh, I so enjoyed seeing Ramsey Bolton get his face eaten off by dogs. Um... <laughs> I love Unreal. I'm really glad it's back. I'm looking forward to Ray Donovan. I like that show. Um, I've been watching a lot of stuff that... uh, I just watched Lady Dynamite. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And I loved it. Maria Bamford show. It's really good. It's really funny. Um, I like a lot of foreign TV shows. I loved Borgen. Mm -hmm. Um... I loved the Danish version of The Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you watch this English version? It just started airing here. The, the English version... Of The Bridge. Well, there was an American version right. that didn't last. Yeah. I but haven't watched an English version I that took place it. in the channel. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Just I might like, watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's on PBS. Movies? Are they not making movies that you want to watch anymore? I mean, I enjoyed The Lobster. Mm-hmm. I thought it was... I'm not sure it... It came together in a way that was the most satisfying for me, mm-hmm. but it was just so original, and it was about something different, you know? Yeah. I went to see Captain America, because, you know, I had to, and I just... There were too many fucking superheroes. I couldn't keep track of them. They kept turning up, and I'm like, well, who's this guy? <laughs> And then I was like, why am I supposed to care that they're fighting each other? Mm-hmm. Have you ever been approached to work on one of these big superhero or tentpole movies? I was told by my agent at one point that after um, True Blood hit that I was being considered for some superhero thing. I don't even remember what it was. Uh-huh. And I just laughed. <laughs> I would love to see your superhero movie. Oh my god, if I did a superhero movie, they would, like, you know, if, I don't know, Superman would be flying through the air and he'd get hit by a bus. You know? Terrific. <laughs> and then, then it's about Lois, right? How exactly. does she feel? <laughs> exactly. It's good stuff. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for chatting with us. My pleasure. This uh, was really fun. All of your shows are on HBO Go. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can watch True Blood and Six Feet Under, 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. I think you me. can watch Towelhead, my movie, on, oh, right. on iTunes. I don't think anybody in the world saw it. I think it's streaming it came out. somewhere also. Yeah. Uh, I just think I was just looking at it. Yeah. But, yeah, people should check that out because it's really good. Thank you. Yeah. Are you directing more? Do you want to direct more? I do. I mean, a, a couple of these movies that I'm, I'm, um, I'm trying to get off the ground. Mm-hmm. And things, you know, look promising one day and not so promising the next day. Um, 
there are movies I want to direct. And if this pilot of mine were to ever go, I would want to direct it. I, I like directing. That's cool. It's fun. I love working with actors. I love, you know... It feels like a natural, a very natural thing for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the voice carries through, and it's more collaboration with mm-hmm. people you like and want to work with. Yeah. Um, that's great. Congrats. Yeah. I hope it works out. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. What are you doing? What are you working on? Now leaving Nerdist.com.